This is Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. So either just listen or read along to this portion of God's Word. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged, been charged, uh, we, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become useless. There is none who does good, there is not even one. Their throat is an open grave, with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Years ago, I remember uh, conducting a a Bible study, and uh, there was a a man who attended, who refused to uh, accept the fact that he is a sinner under God's wrath. Uh, He refused to accept the, the, the teaching, I can't even remember what text we were working through, that, that he was bad because he was comparing himself to the people that you see in the news or that you read on the internet or read in the newspaper, you know, people that, that kill and, and murder and rape and all of those things that you see that they go to jail for. And compared to those people, he's actually pretty good. And so uh, it, it, was a, it was a sad thing to hear someone deny that they are liable before God before the, by, for their sinfulness because they were comparing themselves to other people that they felt morally superior to. Well, in many ways, that is what Paul is driving at in chapters 2 and this beginning portion of chapter 3, that he is addressing the fact that no matter your advantages, no matter your religious background, No matter who you are or where you are, you are a sinner who is guilty of violating the law of God, be that the written law or the law that God puts on everyone's heart. You are a sinner, and you need to deal with that fact honestly and see what God's one solution to that problem is. And so so that is what we'll be looking at this morning. As, uh, as Paul continues his argument in chapter 3, we'll be looking at the fact that we are all unrighteous before God. And again, Paul is setting up and declaring uh, the, uh, the bad news so that he might, and soon uh, we will get to it, soon he will tell us the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so let's, uh, let's, let's uh, work our way through this passage. First, we begin with the charge against every person in verse 9. Now, over the past two Lord's Days, we've looked at the first eight verses of this chapter, and there we saw that Paul uh, is answering possible objections that uh, pious Jews might offer to what he has taught in chapter 2. 
uh, that a Jew is not exempt or excluded from God's wrath simply by being one of God's chosen people or being better than others or by possessing the law of God and his word or by, by being circumcised or by any other outward thing. They fail to keep the law that they have. And they are no better than the Gentiles they look down upon and whom they condemn for their sins. In verses 1 through 8, Paul answered possible objections that a self-righteous Jew might offer. If Jews are not automatically saved by heritage and rituals, what advantage is there in being a Jew, they might accuse? Well, Paul answered that they had great advantages that the rest of the world does not have. By having God's word, they they have the God-appointed worship and rituals. But these outward things must be internalized. These signs must be followed. God's covenant promises are faithful and true, as God himself is true. And God designed the covenant to operate by trusting faith alone in him. When people fail to take hold of God and his promises by trusting faith and repentance alone and do not receive the free gift of salvation that's offered to them, the fault is on them and not God. Other objections, such as presuming on God's forgiveness simply by one's status as a Jew or by declaring my sins give glory to God or the outcome determines the morality of an action, Or, since God often brings good out of sinful situations, I'm not liable for judgment. Those were all dismissed as blasphemous. In today's verses 9 through 18, Paul summarizes the argument he has been making since chapter 1, verse 17. That Gentiles and Jews alike are all sinful and under the just wrath of God for their sins. He then supports this conclusion with a number of Old Testament quotations. God's word uh, through Paul and also in the Old Testament are clear. Each and every person is a guilty sinner before the holy God. And this really needs to be acknowledged if one is to then turn from those sins against God and turn in repentance and trust in the forgiveness and the salvation that's offered in the gospel. We begin with verse 9, where Paul writes, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As Paul has proven in chapter 2 as a whole, and in his response to possible objections in verses 1 through 8 of this chapter, the Jews had many advantages and privileges by having God's word and circumcision and worship And yet, they are not better than anyone else. Those privileges do not excuse them for their sins. They have no advantage before God in the judgment because they too are sinners. As Paul states, we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Paul showed in chapter 1 how Greeks, that that is all non-Jews, Uh, the Gentile peoples of the world, are sinful and under God's wrath. As you may recall, Paul said in, in Romans 1 and 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men 
who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. He went on to explain that although every human being knows that God exists and that his eternal power and divine nature are obvious through what he has made, they do not honor him and give thanks, but instead invent false gods and religions and indulge in sinful passions and actions. They refuse to acknowledge the true God, and God in turn gives them over to a depraved mind to do what they want. Mankind pursues sins of all sorts, and they are under God's wrath in judgment because he is holy and just, and they reject him and fail to serve him, and they are under his just condemnation. But Paul added in chapter 2 that Jews are also under wrath. They look down on the, the wicked, godless Gentiles, but the Jews commit the same sins. He said in Romans 2 and 1, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. These self-righteous Jews are relying on their status as God's chosen people to give them immunity in judgment. But their lives show no godly fruit as they have not trusted and repented in the Lord and his Messiah. Their religion is external. They have heard the law, but they have not kept it. They received circumcision, but they did not pursue uh, the trusting faith of Abraham, which was the point of circumcision. In fact, they failed to be true Jews, Paul said, as they are not trusting in the Lord. They have not internalized their external advantages. In 2, uh, verses 28 and 29, he wrote, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. All persons, Jews and Gentiles, stand before God in his courtroom and are found guilty. In verse 9, Paul states that all persons, each and every individual, is under sin. That is, under the power and corruption of sin and under the just and holy God's judgment and condemnation of it. This is true of every human being with one exception, which we'll get to later. And neither you nor, nor I are that exception. Every single one of us is guilty. You and I are guilty before God. We are sinners, and no amount of religious activity excuses it, and no amount of denying God's existence, uh, when you know he exists, makes him go away or make judgment day vanish. We will all die, and we will all stand before him and will have to give an account. And that account is not good, as you and I are all sinners. Well, second, the biblical evidence of unrighteousness in 10 through 18. And here Paul gives a series of quotations from the Old Testament scriptures to support his charge that all are under sin. In these verses, there are, are uh, four subpoints. Uh, that, uh, that Paul makes, and so we'll, we'll letter these for you note-takers, uh, A, B, C, and D. Uh, a, no one is righteous before God, in verses 10 through 12. 
And here Paul introduces the quotations by saying, as it is written. He then gives quotations from from six different scripture passages, five psalms, and a portion of Isaiah, uh, a larger section of which was read earlier. Uh, Paul's use of scripture to support his arguments speaks of the truthfulness and authority of God's word and its consistency as God the Holy Spirit is working through Paul uh, to teach things uh, also under the Holy Spirit's uh, guidance that are consistent with the rest of God's word. And so to Paul's uh, Jewish readers, it should show that Paul is not inventing a new teaching. He's not doing something new. He's not distorting God's word. But rather, he is teaching faithfully what God has always said in his inerrant word. The first quotation is, is in verses 10 through 12, and is taken from Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Notice the universal statement of verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. A righteous here refers to living in perfect conformity with all of God's laws. And the psalm clearly and firmly teaches that no one does this. And there is not even one exception. Notice again these universal terms all throughout 10 through 12. None is used four times. Not even one twice, in all once. And so the repetition is pounding home this truth. No one is righteous, and there are no exceptions. And so as we read this and hear this, I'm not an exception, and you're not an exception. We like to think of ourselves maybe sometimes as exceptions, but he's ruling that out. Everyone who hears this is, is, is unrighteous. Psalm 14 was written by David. And the psalm is a description of what the Lord sees as he looks down from heaven. He sees universal rejection and disregard of him and his laws. He sees a world where every person without exception is an unrighteous sinner. There is none who understands. Not that every human lacks understanding generally, but they do not understand God due to our rebellion and fallen nature and the blindness of heart Paul spoke of back in Romans 1 and 21. Even though they knew God, they did not order him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Humans know that God exists, that he is divine and good, but in our sinful state we distort and suppress that truth. We do not understand. David adds, there is none who seeks for God. Now, there are many religions in the world, among the peoples of the world, and many would claim to be grounded in a seeking out of God, and certainly many folk do look to religions of various sorts out of a quest to know God. And yet, in our sinfulness, our seeking is, is broken and selfish and distorted even if unintentionally so, such that we end up seeking idols and false gods, not the one living and true God. Again, as Paul wrote back in chapter 1, 22 and 23, professing to be wise, they became fools 
and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Uh, Dan Doriani comments, people long for spirituality, thinking religion can assist them in life's journey. It provides moral friends, opportunities for service, and aid at pivotal moments in life. But this is a quest for a richer life more than a search for God. David adds in our verse 12, all have turned aside, together they have become useless. As he looks down and and sees us, there is a universal turning aside, turning away from God. Mankind is described as useless in the sense of corrupt or, or morally worthless. And then in verse 12, the beginning of the the quote is echoed by David. There is none who does good. There is not even one. We often do not think in those categories, though. We think often of good people versus ungood people, or nice people versus unnice people, right? We think of good people that we know as friends or relatives or neighbors a good folk who may or may not be Christians. And people can be kind and, and considerate and loving and helpful and so on. And that's uh, generally the point of our references to, to good people around us. By God's common grace, there are many people who are kind. And the world is a much more pleasant and livable place because of it. But what Paul uh, speaks of here. And what God sees in Psalm 14 is that we are not good in the deepest part of who we are. We are not good, not even one of us, as we are all far from perfect. We are all sinful in our motives, in our actions, in our desires, in our words, even a carrying out of our good intentions, which which, uh, are always imperfect. We're reminded here of what uh, theologians speak of as the doctrine of total depravity. Uh, R.C. Sproul offers this definition. Total depravity means radical corruption. There is no part of us that is left untouched by sin. Our minds, our wills, our bodies are affected by evil. We speak sinful words, do sinful deeds, have impure thoughts. Our problem with sin is that it is rooted in the core of our being, and it permeates our hearts. Our inability to do good or to seek for God or to be righteous also speaks to the fact that we are totally unable to reach out and find God on our own. We will always turn to idols or self or some other form of unbelief in our spiritual blindness. As we're reminded in Ephesians 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins and lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Well, B, sins of speech in 13 and 14. And in these verses, Paul quotes from Psalm 5, verse 9, and Psalm 140, verse 3. 
And the focus here is on each and every person's sins in what we say. And while Psalm 14, quoted above, speaks of the sinfulness of mankind generally, the original focus of Psalms 9 and 140 was David experiencing the sins of wicked men from inside Israel, men who lie and curse and express bitterness against him. The Israelites then demonstrated this universal sin. Verse 13 begins by quoting Psalm 5, verse 9. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. Uh, these physical references to throat and tongues and later lips and mouth uh, are, are poetic ways of referring to uh, the total depravity of speech and communication. Our speech being an open grave reminds us how corrupt and vile and harmful our words can be and how they can and do have harmful and even deadly effects on others. The way we say things and the things that we say are so often hurtful and harmful or vile and wicked. James writes in James 3 and 6, And the tongue is a fire, the very, a very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life, and it is set on fire by hell. When we speak harsh and hateful words, we show our, throat, or our, our throats to be open graves. Deceiving or lying is universal as well. Uh, the uh, ninth commandment is, you shall not bear false witness, which is in every human heart uh, in our fallen nature. And the uh, larger catechism goes on to describe this in various examples, and I won't go through the whole list, but here's a sample. All prejudicing the truth and the good name of our neighbors, giving false evidence, calling evil good and good evil, speaking the truth unseasonably or maliciously to a wrong end, or perverting it in a wrong to a wrong meeting, equivocating, speaking untruth, lying, slandering, backbiting, scoffing, flattering, boasting, speaking too highly or too meanly of ourselves or others, unnecessary discovering of infirmities, raising false rumors. If we're honest, uh, we're guilty of many of those over the course of our lives, as is every other person. Paul then quotes from Psalm 140, verse 3, the poison of asps is under their lips. In other words, the wicked and sinful speech we speak, be that lies or gossip or harsh words, are as deadly as the poison that is in a snake bite. As we read in Proverbs 18 and 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And who among us hasn't been hurt or hurt others by what we have said? We all give evidence of our fallen and sinful hearts from the first days that we learned to speak and all through life. Jesus says in Matthew 15 and 18, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. Then in verse 14, Paul quotes from Psalm 10 and 7, 
whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. This psalm is a lament to God over the attacks of wicked men on the psalmist. And the words translated curses literally mean negative speech. And it refers to evil speaking and and foul language, lies, intimidation, and so on. Bitterness may refer not just to harshness or malice, but bitter envy. And some offer that translation. And so our words in all these forms reveal our sinful hearts. And that is not just in mankind generally. It's in you and me specifically. C, sins of violence in verses 15 through 17. The next lines are all a quotation of Isaiah 59, 7 and 8. And the context of those verses is from Isaiah is pointing out Israel's sinful rebellion against the Lord and his law. And so they are an example of the larger problem that this is also existing in mankind generally as we are violent by our, our fallen nature. Their feet are swift to shed blood, meaning that people rush to and pursue opportunities to physically injure and even kill others. We only have to look at the news or uh, the talk uh, of what goes on in people's lives around us or be aware of history to know that this is sadly true. From war, like what we're seeing presently in the Ukraine, to assaults, to violent crimes, to domestic violence, to murder. Violent acts of all sorts are all around us. And this is not a fluke. It's because our hearts are full of hatred and sinful jealousies and violence. Societal norms and and the civil magistrate and police and common grace thankfully puts a damper on a lot of that. But it is who we are. As human beings. Verses 16 and 17 add destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. Commentator Alec Motyer writes Whatever they do, wherever they go, whatever they think, they cannot escape what they are. They do not know peace, nor can their walks, their lifestyle, lead to peace. This is peace in its most comprehensive sense. Peace with God. Peace in society. Peace in a mature personality. No longer at war, even with itself. And this is because of our rebellion against God and His authority in the heart. And so there is conflict on every level. It doesn't doesn't necessarily result in murder. Few people will commit that. But there is certainly hatred and strife and conflict and quarrels and disagreements all around us and in all of our lives, in families, in the workplace, in neighborhoods, in society. It's everywhere you look. D, no fear of God in verse 18. And here we have a final quotation, this time from Psalm 36, verse 1. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And here really is the summary statement that gives us a sense of all of these quotations. There is no fear of God in us by nature in our fallen sinfulness. We do not have proper awe and respect of God. And so we do what we want 
rather than seek to obey and honor and submit to him. He is our creator and Lord, yet we do not obey him as such. And so there is a lack of fear, as in both lack of respect and awe, and lack of dread of the coming judgment, when we all will stand before him. As we are reminded back in Romans 1, after Paul gave a long list of sins, from murder to envy to gossip to being disobedient to parents, he added in verse 32, And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. We all know, Paul says, that we deserve hell on some level. And we know the judgment of God is against us. And yet we sinfully not only reject that, but go ahead and and sin and even approve of sin when we see it in others. Psalm 36 goes on to speak of sinful mankind's ways. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He plants wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. Paul's scriptural support in today's passage shows that God's word in the Old Testament teaches what Paul has presented in Romans, that each and every person, Jew and Gentile alike, is a sinner before God. And we must not just accept that generally. We need very much to personalize this. Each and every one of us is guilty. You are guilty before God, as am I. We are sinners, and no amount of religious activity excuses it. No amount of denying God's existence negates the fact that all will die and stand before him. And every one of us will have to give an account. And left to ourselves, every one of us in our accounting will be bad, will be guilty. And that indeed is bad news. And it's addressed to you, and it's addressed to me, and it's addressed to everyone you know, and for that matter, it's addressed to everyone you don't know. Most importantly this morning, it is to you and to me as we hear it today as individuals. Know this in your heart and embrace this grim truth. You are a sinner. You are not a good person. You sin every day in thought and word and deed against the holy and wonderful and good God who made you. You do things that you know you shouldn't do. You think things you know you shouldn't think. You fail to do things that you know you're required to do. You break God's law in countless ways as you've heard it and as you've read it and as your own conscience speaks of it to you. You have not honored God as you need to. And that is something grim, but something that you need to own in your heart. Do you have a sense of the filthiness of your own sin and how ugly and sinful your ways are? And how offensive those sins are 
to the holy God. And it is really only when we grasp this sad truth by God's grace and the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart that you will then fully appreciate and look to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is offered to all people, Jews and Greeks, and the only way to avoid the wrath for sins that you and I deserve. Now, Paul will apply what he's taught in 1 and 2, chapters 1 and 2, and what these Old Testament quotations support uh, in verses 19 and 20, which we'll look at next week, Lord willing. But for now, notice that every person is a sinner. So when you and I and each person who ever lives goes to stand before God in his courtroom and our lives are held up and compared to that law, no one will be found not guilty based on your deeds, on my deeds. Every person will be seen to be guilty. And Jews are not accepted from judgment. Church members are not accepted from judgment. No one is an exception. Romans three nineteen and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so the only way to avoid the wrath that you deserve is by the forgiveness and salvation offered in Jesus Christ alone, in the gospel of grace alone. As Paul will write then following in verses 21 through 25, But now God has made known a righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Jesus Christ is the eternal God, the Son, second person of the triune God, who became also fully man to be the saving substitute of all of those who cannot save themselves. And that is everyone. He lived this life in perfect obedience to all of God's laws, something you and I and every other person who has lived fails to do. And on the cross, he took the wrath of God due to his people for their sins upon himself. He died and was buried. But on the third day, God the Father raised him from the dead, a a living Savior and an accepted sacrifice. And all those who trust in him and his saving work are forgiven by his sacrifice justified in God's courtroom by the covering of Jesus' righteousness, given eternal life and fellowship with the triune God, and are eternally reconciled to Him. And all that, again, is by God's gift and grace alone. As we take hold of God's grace and gift as it's offered in Jesus Christ, as we embrace Him by faith, we cannot earn salvation, and certainly no one deserves it. And so it comes all by God's grace and mercy. And so Paul reminds us in this passage that we are sinful and deserve judgment and condemnation. But the good news is very good. And that is that salvation is offered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if you know that salvation, 
then rejoice that you have not received and you will not receive what you deserve. Christ took that for you. And if you have not trusted in Christ, then do not count on your goodness when you stand before him. Because unless you're covered in the righteousness of Christ and the forgiveness that came by his sacrifice by faith, you will get what you deserve from a just and holy God. And that is not something that you want to have for eternity. And so I encourage you to think on these things and trust in Christ and know this free gift of salvation. Let's pray together. Lord God, we do thank you and praise you for this portion of your word. We ask that you would apply it to our hearts. We thank you for the the grim reality spoken of here. That we are sinful beings. That we sin every day in thought and word and deed. And though religion, uh, uh, Judaism and and, uh, Christianity provide blessings and teach us and point us to the way of salvation. Those things need to be taken hold of by faith and internalized. And so we pray that as we've heard the gospel, that we would all be trusting in Jesus Christ for that gift of salvation by your grace alone. And we pray for those around us who are trusting in other things, that you would impress this truth on their hearts, that they would see their own sinfulness and turn to Jesus Christ as he's offered in the gospel and know that salvation. We pray that you would bring the people around us under the the teaching and preaching of the gospel and that you would save many in these days among our neighbors and relatives and friends and also those uh, across the country and around the world. And we we pray that in these days you would, would build your kingdom until it covers the earth. We thank you and praise you for your mercy and grace to us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.